This Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by For All Secure. For All Secure was founded with the mission to make the world's critical software safe. The company's patented technology is the product of over a decade of research into solving the difficult challenge of making software safer. For All Secure has partnered with Fortune 1000 companies in aerospace, automotive, and high tech, as well as the U.S. Department of Defense, which has integrated For All Secure's Mayhem technology into software development cycles for continuous security. Welcome to this Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, what we found was, of course, humans could find bugs that Mayhem couldn't because you have that human creativity. But Mayhem, think of it as a little like a chess engine because it could reason so deeply, it could analyze all these states that often would confuse humans. The media's focus on artificial intelligence and machine learning are mostly confined to digital home assistants like Amazon's Alexa or applications in healthcare, public safety or medicine. But artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies are having a profound impact elsewhere, including in the field of information security. One area that has seen rapid advancement thanks to machine learning and artificial intelligence is the tried and true practice of fuzzing or testing software applications for defects and exploitable vulnerabilities. A highly specialized discipline, bug hunting is also very data and work intensive. That's driven bug hunters for years to look for ways to speed and automate the work that they they do, discovering and testing for software holes. But our guest this week for the podcast, David Brumley, the chief executive officer at For All Secure, says that machine learning is rapidly transforming fuzzing as a strategy and a tool. As advanced algorithms are being coupled with analytic methods like symbolic execution to model the operation of software applications and identify serious security flaws rapidly. In this conversation, David and I talk about the growing importance of application fuzzing as a security tool, and also about some of the complications that large-scale fuzzing and vulnerability discovery has created. My name is David Brumley. I'm the CEO of For All Secure. And you've been on the Security Ledger podcast, so welcome back to the Security Ledger podcast. But for people who didn't listen to our earlier podcast with you, tell us a little bit about For All Secure. For All Secure is a startup that's really trying to focus on changing the way we approach application security. It was spawned out of Carnegie Mellon University after about a decade of research and then battle tested in something called the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, where the goal was to come up with fully autonomous cyber. And we've taken that technology and those learnings and built a product to try to really achieve our mission, which is to secure the world software. And we believe a different approach is needed than what you would currently found on the market. We had a really interesting conversation last time you were on just about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the various applications of that technology um, to the problem of cybersecurity, broadly speaking, application security, maybe more specifically. And since then, For All Secure has done some really interesting research and, in fact, used its platform to uncover a range of different vulnerabilities in really common open source uh, libraries and components. Talk a little bit about the research that you've done and particularly kind of the methodology that you guys have used to, to, to find these vulnerabilities. 
One of the things that we're really interested in is when we're thinking about how to better protect our apps, can we actually use it to find improve really uh, real vulnerabilities in real software? So one of the things that we really big advocates of is something called next generation fuzzing. The way we've been really testing it beyond our initial work with the DARPA CyberGround Challenge is running against real applications. So we've ran it against the Netflix dial server and found new zero days in that, which we've responsibly disclosed. Uh, we have one that I can talk about that we actually just got the CVE on yesterday in the OpenWRT router, which runs on a mm. lot of you know Soho routers that you could buy or install on your Soho yeah. router to bugs in commonly used libraries. I can't talk about some of those because they're under the responsible disclosure uh, 90 day policy. But that's really been our approach is not just to do the research, but then say, okay, let's go find real software people run or that is mission critical. And is it finding stuff that no one else has found before? Let's just back up for our listeners who may or may not be application developers. So when we're talking about fuzzing, explain what fuzzing is as a method for finding security holes. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's been said just to back up a little bit that software is eating the world, right? So we need to check and see what's eating software. And a lot of that is security in the actual applications that power our lives. And so there's this big question of how do we find improved vulnerabilities? One of the really hot, really great ideas that is coming forward and being used by a lot is called fuzzing. And what fuzzing does at really a high level is you run the application or the fuzzer runs the application and then feeds it inputs. And it's watching the application as it runs. And it's trying to look for two things. First, did it trigger a vulnerability? And the second thing is the next time it runs the software, how can it do better? And it does that by adding instrumentation. So you can think of this as like learning. The longer fuzzing runs, the deeper and deeper it'll get into your application logic and find deeper bugs. And the cool thing is every result is actionable because you can just run that input that the fuzzer produced and show the application crashed or triggered the vulnerability. Vulnerability researchers have been using these types of tools for for a while to, you know, more or less, you know, save themselves time and and automate some of their work. Yeah, I mean, in nineteen what late late nineteen eighties, Bart Miller tried Unix applications and he found he could find. Uh, like 30% of them would crash by just giving them random inputs. And then, you know, fast forward over, what is it? Four or five decades worth of research later. And we've learned that we can do a lot more than just throwing random inputs at it. But you still have this idea that you just give it an application, you don't necessarily need source code, and you can prove that there's these defects, vulnerabilities, security problems that have laid dormant for years. You're listening to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast brought to you by For All Secure. We'll talk a little bit about how the art of fuzzing has evolved, I think maybe from, you know, the 80s or 90s, where it was just kind of throwing bogus inputs and seeing what happens. Um, When we're talking about the types of fuzzing that you are automating, um, what types of strategies or techniques are you using? Well, I think it's evolved really in two ways. So let's focus on really the technology, which is my first love, right? So long time ago, it was throwing random inputs at the program and just seeing, did it crash? And the first thing people did kind of in the generation one commercial products is they said, well, just random inputs. There's a pretty large space there. The probability of picking one that is going to crash it is lower than it needs to be. So we're going to define a protocol. We're going to really just lay out what it looks like to be a valid input for the program. And that really upped the game of security. And there's been a few commercial products on that. The problem with protocol fuzzing that people realize is that as soon as you write down that protocol, you've assume the uh, application properly recognizes that protocol. So you may have like an HTTP protocol and you say it's always the request, like get followed by the URL, followed by HTTP slash 1.0. And the limitation is, well, what about an application that incorrectly parses the get or accepts other keywords, maybe even a backdoor keyword or something? Mm -hmm. 
And really the next generation was we're going to instrument the program. And instead of defining a protocol or handwriting it, we're going to learn as that application analyzes or processes that input what happens. So you can think like the application first checks is the first letter G or not. And then there's different behavior on whether that's true or false. And then it processes the next one, E or not. The big difference is a human hasn't written that. The fuzzer is learning as it goes along. So that's really the generation two. This is where you're adding instrumentation. And this is where, when you look at like Google and Microsoft, a lot of what they're doing. Generation three is where you start using a technique called symbolic execution. And it's really something that we've borrowed or stole, depending on how you look at it, from formal methods. So back in the day, we try to use formal methods to prove an application is secure. And here we're using the techniques to prove it's insecure. And the real secret behind it is you take a program and you build a first order logic model of it. And then you try to prove that bad states are reachable. And so generation three really uses this symbolic execution plus the instrumentation guided fuzzing approach to get the best of really like a formal methods approach along with this rapid feedback cycle of learning from the application as it executes. And, and do you find that different types of uh, or classes of vulnerabilities and problems kind of bubble up uh, as, as you shift methodologies? Different classes come up. And then the other thing that we found is they just have different performance profiles. Like if you waited till the end of the universe and you had a million monkeys typing at a keyboard, it's going to write Shakespeare, right? But you want to do it faster. That's kind of the bottom line. Why is it always Shakespeare? Why isn't it some other, why isn't it, you know, J.K. Rowling or something? That's right. <laughs> Harry Potter is way, way more popular these days. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who the hell reads Shakespeare? A million monkeys, they build Harry Potter. <laughs> We digress. We, we digress. digress. But by being systematic, by like, you know, maybe in an analogy, by analyzing what is good sentence structure or by watching how the reader reads sentences, um, you can get to those great storylines much better. Um, and so that's really what's happened with this is both you can find deeper dugs, bugs, but also it's not just random chance you run into something. You started to use, for example, with symbolic execution, you're really using formal logic. You're using high powered tools like... SMT solvers. An SMT solver is a satisfiability solver. So this is, if you remember from computer science, this question of uh, undecidability, it was like one of these key problems. We're actually leveraging that technology to find security bugs now. Tell me about the bugs that, that you are finding. You know, is this the sort of uh, usual suspects of application security flaws? Again, are we in kind of new territory with the types of uh, flaws that are being discovered? Well, I think it's really up to the imagination of the user on what you can find. So at a base level, what they're really doing, these, these next generation fuzzers, is they're figuring out when an application has gone wrong. It's either crashed or it's violating an assert. Um, and it's finding those really, really quickly. And the real distinguishing characteristic is every time you find something, you have an input that triggers it. So you don't have to sort through false positives or a report. You can just throw the input yourself against your web server and see that it crashes. And that helps debugging because first thing a developer is going to ask you for if you say we have a security problem is give me an example. You can give them the example. When I say it's like really the imagination of the users, you can start checking programmer defined logic like is there an invariant? Like should this crypto always be triggered? One of the examples I just talked about, the open WRT vulnerability that we just found was because 
someone had written some crypto code, but it actually was never called. So they were trying to like make sure things were cryptographically protected, but due to some parsing errors, that checksum was never actually checked in some cases, and the fuzzer automatically discovered that. So pretty subtle types of uh, flaws. Absolutely. So you can go as deep as you want, or the cool thing is there's a pretty clean on-ramp where you just start with the application, nothing user-defined, and see what you can find. You're turning these to test out the capability of your platform, which is called Mayhem, to very common open source tools and libraries that are often shared widely across many different open source projects. Can you talk a little bit about which of those you guys have analyzed and kind of why you chose them and what you found? Well, when we looked at this, like Fuzzers for a long time, as you said, have been in the security research uh, community. So if you went to like a DEF CON, you could find people who have used them. The hard part is you haven't found people who are really deploying them systematically in practice. And We have a commercial product. You can use it to check commercial proprietary code. But of course, when you do that, you're embargoed from really saying anything about it. You're leaving it with the company to protect. So we started looking at open source and especially popular stuff everyone could recognize really to start telling the story that it works. It works on things you've heard of or embedding. So when you look at the Mongoose vulnerability that we found that's on our blog, it's the Netflix dial server, but really that's built on an open source web server called Mongoose, which is used in tons of embedded applications. Uh, another that you analyzed was this one, this bootloader, uh, Das Uboot. That was one that was really fun for me. This is a bootloader that's used um, on, man, Kindles, Chromebooks, whole bunch of kind of consumer grade networked things, basically. So talk about that. As you said, it's it's just all over the place. It's really one of the primitives, right? When a computer boots up, it's going to load the bootloader before really any operating system permissions are applied or anything like that. And, you know, we're all very concerned about privacy. And we all hear about like for an iPhone and the debate on whether Apple should jailbreak it or not. But it points to this desire that we want that booting process. We want to make sure that the fundamental primitives are secure. And so we thought, why not check the bootloader that's used in billions of applications. And what we found was if someone malicious potentially plugged it into their computer, that they could compromise the entire device. Um, And we responsibly disclosed it and fixed it. This wasn't a, a Google problem or an Amazon problem. This was software common to everyone who was using that bootloader, including those two companies. So if someone was to compromise this, they could gain access to those devices that people are depending on. And we thought that was important. Again, trying to tell the story of these tools that have kind of been in research, they're really important to start using in prime time because of these sorts of problems that have just gone unknown for years. Instead of just a security report that says it may be problematic, actually showing how you can do it um, is just that much more convincing. Okay. So I'm just going to read from your blog and don't ask me to explain to the audience what these are. But among the things that Mayhem found in Das das Ubut, five divided by zero is triggered by invalid ext file systems and a stack overflow in the dos partition parser so stack overflows a divide by zeros those would all seem to be uh, the types of vulnerabilities that people are commonly looking for or certainly bad guys are and probably you know white hats and good guys too are they particularly hard to find or is it more is this really an issue of kind of resources that because mayhem can actually just do this in an automated fashion, it's suddenly, you know, the the yeoman's work of pouring over this dasu boot code and, and looking for these vulnerabilities can be passed off to, to a tool. Well, a human can find them. Like, you know, we don't want to underestimate human creativity. I think the challenge when you say like, oh, it's just a dumb programmer. I, I hear this all the time. Programmers have to start 
stop developing software that has bugs is yeah which is impossible <laughs> computer programs are just so int- intricate is when we first did the cyberground challenge for example mayhem then played in the defcon hacking challenge and for those of you who don't know the defcon ctf is really the world experts i mean these are people who find zero days that sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars what we found was of course humans could find bugs that mayhem couldn't because you have that human creativity but mayhem think of it as a little like a chess engine because it could reason so deeply it could analyze all these states that often would confuse humans. So I remember that there was a vulnerability mayhem proved, found, and exploited that the team that won DEF CON that year missed. They even had noted this line of code looks suspect, but they couldn't convince themselves it was a vulnerability. So I think it goes beyond just, you know, hey, a human could find it with enough hours. Humans aren't built for the sort of reasoning that a deep chess engine can do. And that's really the equivalent of fuzzing. And tools like Mayhem and other tools people have out there. Right. Or like the chess that played Go, right? Where all of a sudden it was like playing Go in this way that nobody ever played Go before. You know, it was just spotting these deep patterns that, you know, even the best Go players hadn't recognized. It spots the deep patterns. It also is just following the rules so algorithmically that people just get used to. That's just the way it works. And computers don't have those broken assumptions. I love broken assumptions. I think I'm going to have to start using that phrase a lot more. Happens all the time. Yeah, no, it is. It's right? it's a it's a particularly it's a it's a well turned phrase, both for for application development and for other things as well. I think. So you mentioned that um, one of the things that you just uh, the, the for all secure just secured was a CVE for a new vulnerability, uh, newly discovered vulnerability in what is it? OpenWRT. It's an OpenWRT. So we don't have a blog okay. post up, so this is super early. What's the CVE? First of all, give us the number. CVE 2020-7982. So the description is a bug in the package list parse logic of OpenWRT's OPackage, that's their package manager, caused the package manager to ignore a SHA checksum. So what would happen is like when you do OPackage and you want to grab a new package, the way it works is often it'll download those packages over HTTP, an unsecure connection, and often it does that just for load reasons. And then over a secure channel, it gets a checksum and then it checks after it downloads. Was that checksum correct? And what we showed is that you could provide a package with invalid metadata that would cause that checksum to ne- uh, never be checked. And that way you could inject malicious code. So the uh, attack would come by way initially of that of that package. Yeah. So like a typical use case would be a malicious actor has compromised an O package repository. That one's kind of bad because they could probably change the checksum. But if they man in the middle, you, for example, for download, uh, anyone on your network path, it's just over HTTP how it's downloading. So that's not too hard to do. They could download, they could inject a malicious package to own your system. And, you know, like Soho routers are often the central point of the house. And this is just, you know, one of the problems. We have, I think, a thousand bugs that we found internally that may or may not be security vulnerabilities. And then we're trying to go through and look at the higher profile packages and really go through that responsible disclosure uh, cycle of getting the CVE and giving time for it to be fixed. So do you just have mayhem running like all the time and it's just spitting out new vulnerabilities? Yeah, we have it running on, I don't know couple hundred to a couple thousand pieces of software at any one time. We're not alone in this problem. There's actually been blog posts on kernel mailing lists and from Google. When you start fuzzing, the rate at which you find bugs is so high that the CVE process doesn't really match it because it's so slow. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting. If you look at Google, a lot of times they never even file a CVE. Um, If you just went through like the OSS fuzz results, their version of a fuzzer, you could probably find a lot of vulnerabilities that are actively being um, 
the software is actively being used and no one just noticed that it was a security vulnerability. I guess, where does that leave us? CV is kind of the nomenclature for, you know, a vulnerability that you need to address. I, I totally get what you're saying. It doesn't surprise me um, that you've got this scale problem, right? That fuzzers are discovering vulnerabilities and, and the CVE process is, came up in a different era when there was a much lower volume. But where does that leave us as a security community and a, and a vendor community and a cons- customer community in terms of um, knowing that uh, if there's something out there and discovered, uh, there's a way for me to find out about it and address it. I think that's something we're still trying to figure out. So when you do a fuzzing, like like any application security testing technique, right, you're going to find bugs and some of those bugs may be vulnerabilities. And the old CVE process was really, you know, there was a few people and they were submitting things and manually reviewing them, really trying to understand the scope of the attack, come up with attack scenarios. But when you have a process that's finding bugs, and I think it was something like 20 20, 20 to 25% of them from open uh, from OSS fuzz from Google were actually vulnerabilities. They weren't just bugs, they were vulnerabilities. Th- that manual process doesn't support it. And you don't want to have your workforce going back through and doing all that manual work. I mean, they're known issues. They're going to at least crash the, the program. So we're trying to think about like, what should we be doing here that's different? Because that process just doesn't work. How do you determine if a bug is a vulnerability? So typically what you try to do is you'd, you'd look at the software, you'd figure out where and how it's used, and then you try to figure out what an attacker could get if they triggered that bug. But it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. Like if you can hijack control of the program and install malware, I think everyone agrees, hey, that's a vulnerability It needs to be fixed. Where it gets a little more iffy is, for example, if you just crash the application. A lot of security researchers will say that's not a vulnerability, that's just denial of service. But what if that software is running on a power plant or aircraft or a ship? Well, for that use case, it definitely is a vulnerability because maybe that service always has to be up. I, I, I don't think anyone really has it, but the word vulnerability or exploit really, you know, there's some things we can all agree on, but a lot of it depends upon the use case. That's right. And you see also, you know, for example, they're, they're developing special CVEs just for medical devices, right? Because there's this whole notion of patient harm, you know, because of the consequences of failure are so high, maybe this needs to be 10 instead of just, you know, five out of 10, right? Yeah, absolutely. So like one of the things we did it for all secure, like in the DARPA days is we had to show enough that we could hijack control to get points. But that was a little bit too close to offensive use for us to try to commercialize. So we decided to remove that from the product. And I think that's like something that all of us have to think about is if I can automatically come up with a full chain exploit, great. You know, developers are convinced it's a security problem, but that's exactly the side of tool you can use for offense. And so for us, we've gotten to this idea that you can prove the defect exists. You get CWE information about what type of bug it is. Is it invalid read that could maybe reveal sensitive data or invalid write that you could trigger or create a full control flow hijack, but you don't go the full scope of proving it. So you bring up a good point, which, which is there there is a lot of discussion and debate these days about the degree to which um, many very useful tools are, you know, serving both offensive and defensive communities. You know, I think of like Mimikatz as an example, right? I think that's something that like everyone has to wrestle with. And it's really a matter of degree, like labeling something as like offense or defense doesn't 
really makes sense because a lot of these things are dual reuse, as you said. This isn't like a new discussion with security. We had this with cryptography, and I, I pretty much align with the cryptographic viewpoint. We provide technology that can do great things, and like any technology that can do these sorts of things, there's people who are going to use it for bad and people who are going to use it for good. And the question is how much you want to enable that um, with things like workflow and so on. So uh, RSA conference is coming up um, for all secure is going to be there. What, what are you guys up to, and what are you going to be talking about out at the RSA conference? Well, there's two things. So first, we're going to be in the innovation sandbox. So you can come and see us there. The second thing that we're doing is we have um, a little working group where we're going to start having a discussion with some of the fuzzing experts uh, co-located around the same time. So February 25th, it really just is a bunch of people who are experts in the field talking about what they're doing. And, you know, these sorts of topics about should we create a separate tracking system for fuzzing are all open game with those experts. So, you know, it's people like Max at Google or uh, Kostya, who is an LLVM developer. He writes a lot of the sanitizers people use to FuzzBuzz, which is theoretically a company that, that competes with us. They have you know, a great set of tools as well to really have that discussion about why are people using it, what sort of use cases is fuzzing good for, as well as discussions just like we had here today about, well, what about offense? How do we manage the CVE process afterwards? And so on. Really fascinated um, conversation, David. It always is with you. And um, looking forward to seeing you out at RSA and uh, definitely looking forward to hearing what else is, uh, is coming from, um, from For All Secure. I'm excited to be there and I'm really excited to hear from other people. So please do show up and have that conversation. David Brumley of For All Secure, thank you so much for coming back on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. David Brumley is the chief executive officer of the firm For All Secure.